Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, it's been a crazy week for the cancellation of Hamilton's LRT project. Where do we go from here? And with the shuttering of the GM assembly plant in Oshawa this week, what is the future of the auto industry here in Ontario? And who won the Democratic debate last night? It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's uh, been a crazy week here in this city, and it uh, kicked off, of course, on Monday when uh, Carolyn Mulroney, the transportation minister for the province of Ontario, uh, waltzed into town. And uh, well, I, I, as I mentioned yesterday, I said she was going to announce that she did. She never did make an announcement, but uh, we know that the funding was, was yanked for LRT. And uh, we've covered that that topic extensively on the program uh, over the last number of days. We had a great panel discussion yesterday with the uh, uh, Graham Crawford and, of course, Laura Babcock. We've talked with Joe Mancinelli, uh, who's uh, got, you know, he's got Anthony up here. He's got ch- chips in the game here because of the work that Leona's doing downtown. But is this a dead issue? Uh, there are some people that still think they can revive this. Uh, some of the off-record conversations I've had with some members of city council said, look, it's over. It's time to turn the page. Uh, John Best is uh, the publisher, of course, of the Bay Observer, uh, who's been covering this story since its inception, I guess. And uh, he's with us here to talk about this and and uh, maybe put some perspective on this. Thanks for coming in, John. Good to see you again. Oh, it's great to be here, Bill. Uh, was it 10 years, 11 years now we've been doing this? I uh, think this? it was uh, the first inklings were about 2007. Okay. Uh, and then I think 2007, 2008 is when uh, Dalton McGinney announced the... Uh, uh, I forget what he called it now, the Move Ontario, or I forget. But it, anyway, the, 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 it was going to be a major shift into um, uh, transit uh, for the entire GTA-H. And, you know, the announcement was that the government was going to make significant investments in transit, uh, both interurban, go, and also within the communities. And that's the point at which... Uh, Hamilton started thinking about initially uh, the, uh, the initial work that staff did. Said, you know, let's let's look at let's see if we can qualify for bus rapid transit, and and quite a bit of work was done on that for about a year. But then, uh, when the provincial government announced that, you know, the the magnitude of the money they were prepared to spend, suddenly we started talking about LRT. And uh, the race was on, so to speak. We had a panel discussion, and I remember it was Russ Powers, Lloyd Ferguson, I can't remember who else, there's two or three others, uh, who came in here, and they'd just been on a North American tour of yes. some of the cities that had this this kind of transit, and they were just beaming. So, oh, this is going to be great for us. It's transformational. And, and I, I, I got to admit, I got caught up in that. I mean, it sounds fabulous. So did I. So did I in the, in the early days. Yeah. I, I thought it would be, I thought it'd be a great thing. And, you know, it's easy to get excited about, you know, shiny objects. I mean, let's face it, we're guys and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, just, uh, you know, my my feeling about LRT uh, certainly evolved uh, because I, I was quite prepared to jump on board, as they say, in the, in the first couple of years. But uh, initially, I, I think what started to turn me was the process. I started to see that there was thumbs on the scale as far as public consultation uh, very worried about the the public consultation process that took place back in 2008, 2009, 2010, where BRT was taken right off the table, and and when you actually peel the onion back, uh, it was really on the strength of 151 comment cards at two open houses. It was at that point that staff said, 
overwhelming support for LRT, let's not study bus rapid transit anymore. What was the report, John? It was a 700-page report that Don Hull, who was the tra- the guy yes. from the city here at the time, I, 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 and I read the damn thing. It was in my office for years and years. I don't know where it is now. Uh, but it essentially said, look, at this has to be an evolution. We're going to do bus rapid transit, and as ridership expands, then we'll, we'll apply for LRT. Uh, and that, as you say, got tossed aside when the premier came in here and said, no, we're going to give you the money for this. And it, it caught a lot of people off guard. And, and I, I still support the concept of this. And I, you know, I've taken a lot of heat for that on the program. But my major concern always was ridership because it's a problem. Public transit is, is a problem here in Hamilton because the ridership has never actually been where it should be to try. It's, it's never going to, you know, it's never going to be, you know, a, a, an even split. We're always going to lose money on public transit. Most cities do. But I was concerned when they made that announcement that we just don't have enough people doing this. Well, if you look at the numbers right now, we, uh, on that corridor, which would include the the King bus, the good old King bus that actually pays its way, and the uh, the, the uh, B-Line, and a couple of other buses that run along that corridor, we are moving approximately one quarter of the number of passengers that would be required to make LRT even at the bottom end of uh, success. So I guess the premise has been that by changing the the nature of the vehicle from a bus to a rail car is somehow going to result in a quadrupling of uh, use of, of the system. And I guess also, if you look at the corridor itself, it's running through an established part of the city. It's been there since the city's been here. There's not a lot of growth potential uh, other than uh, high rises and, and that sort of thing. So, you know, I think there were some premises here that, that while they sounded good, I, I've, I've never really believed that, uh, that, that simply changing the nature of the vehicle uh, was going to have that huge difference. I think... There's no question that transit does drive development. There's absolutely no question about that. Uh, but we never explored bus rapid transit, which is, uh, you know, a third or a quarter of the Well, cost. we sort of did. Remember, we put a bus lane on King Street. Yeah. And council kiboshed it after a couple of months because they got too much flack from it. I think they would change their tune now based on what what they were faced with. I'm not so sure they would, but okay. <laughs> I, I, you know, I think if the LRT had, had uh, been put down King Street... They, you know, they talked about maintaining a lane of traffic in each direction, but yeah. I think most people would have just thrown up their hands and uh, said, no, we're not going there. And I think that was the plan. The, the plan was to just get traffic right off that street. But it's an artery. It's an artery. Uh, you know, uh, of course, you've got Cannon Street, which I guess could, could replace it, and You've got Main Street, although I heard one of your guests uh, suggesting we should congest Main Street by making it two-way. Not sure that would be a good idea. Um, I mean, the one thing that comes out of this, if we do go, uh, I mean, I really think that if if we're not going to do LRT, we really, we can't simply go back to what we're doing now. We, I think we have to put in bus rapid transit. I think there's an expectation that we, we need that. But do we have an appetite here in the city to do that? Because it is going to change. It's it's not as transformational, but it is going to change the way we drive, the way we get from point A to point B here. There have to be dedicated lines er, for that to work. There would. And, and not just on King Street. We're talking in other areas of the city as well. Well, I think the difference between bus rapid transit and, and LRT is that now you could explore using both Maine and King, and therefore the, you know, you, you're really only 
compromising one lane as opposed to the middle of the street. Yeah, but I mean, if you're going to go that way, it's like the old adage, go big or go home. You should do it on Upper James as well. I mean, there's other areas of the city where it's screaming for something like that. Well, you could buy a lot of BRT for a billion dollars. Yeah, I suppose so. Uh, You know, when and that's that's something that I think I I noticed that uh, Councillor Partridge put out a news release yesterday saying what you have said earlier, you know, it's time to sit down and see what we can do with this money. This is an opportunity uh, that's been presented. The council was never unanimous on this issue. They they certainly were, uh, as far as I'm concerned, derelict in their duty uh, to not speak up and ask tough questions all the way along here. But having said that, uh, if you gave them truth serum, I think you'd find <laughs> that about nine of them have never really been that crazy about about LRT. The only way and the only reason that a number of the skeptics, and there are lots of them on council, John, uh, went on side with this was simply because the province was saying, don't worry, we got this. We're going to pay for this. Don't worry. You're not, not a nickel. Don't. Well, that's not going to happen. No matter what anybody wants to do to try to revive this. And I know there are people like Joe Mancinelli and others that like to see this come back in some way, shape, or form. But for that to happen, the city's going to have to ante up. And I don't think city council wants to do that. I don't think there's a way that, uh, you know, all eyes are now turning to Ottawa to see how much money we can pull out of there. They're not going to cover the whole bill. Uh, well, they no, because uh, they have entered into agreements with Kitchener and, and other cities uh to get their money, you got to put up some money. Yep. That's the bottom line. Now, my thought uh, driving in here today was, could we, um, quali- like right now, we, we know that we could qualify for some federal money if we could put up a hundred odd million dollars. We could get some real good transit money in here. My question is, can we use any part of that billion as, as, our, as our piece of that? that? That might be something to look at. So where do we go from here? Uh, I mean, first of all, I guess there has to be, on city council's part, some sort of an acceptance of the fact that, okay, uh, that's gone. We've got to go to plan B at this stage. And I'm not so sure everybody's like that yet. No, they're not. And uh, But I I guess uh, when I see some of the rhetoric from the mayor and I see that, uh, particularly that open letter to the premier, which, uh, frankly, to my mind, is uh, shocking, um, you know the language in there and the emotion in there. Uh, I I think is totally unhelpful. And I guess my question is is who's he speaking on behalf of? Uh, I can remember Bob Vitrina getting his knuckles wrapped and uh, for uh, dealing unilaterally with the province uh, to the point where they said he you know if he was going to have any more communication with the province he had to have a minder with him. Uh, but here we have... And by the uh, way, that resolution is still on the books. Still on the books, but it, uh, it, it mind you, they, they didn't really enforce it very much with Bob. But That's true. I, I guess the point is uh, there, there's correspondence going to Queen's Park right now that, that is simply not helpful. How can you, if, if the project is completely dead, and my guess is uh, uh, I don't think it's as dead as the Monty Python parrot, but I, I, I think it's, it's in just, serious it's just trouble. Rest, it's just resting. It's just resting. Pining yeah. for the fjords. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, then, then there is going to be a point where, where council is going to have to negotiate uh, how the money gets spent. Uh, how are they going to have credible input if you've got this screaming going on? But the th- this is the whole thing. I mean, there's still this this opportunity. I mean, even when I had the minister on the day after this, 
Uh, and and Mr. Mulroney said, she said, you know, we're going to have this task force that's going to come back with recommendations about where the money should go. And she said, if they bring back LRT, well, I guess we'd have to consider that. Well, th- that that's not no then. I mean, you know, the province has to be adamant about this. It's either, yes, we're still going to consider this in some way, shape, or form, or no, this is off the table altogether. Well, I agree, but the other thing you got to remember is I think she can speak with some confidence about the task force because she's going to appoint the members. Sure. So my guess is they're not going to come back to her with a recommendation. Well, that's for what LRT. I said that day too. I mean, you know, yeah. this, they're not going to go back and contravene the, the the order that she just gave. Yeah, I I'm, I would imagine there's going to be a very careful selection process. Uh, you know, we've had enough nasty surprises in this city uh, lately. Um, I don't think that will be one of them. So obviously council is going to have to get their head around that, and, and I guess other people in the community are going to have to get their head around that too. This is, this is a disappointment, but it's, it's not a tragedy. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I know some councillors are saying that you know, we've gone back to the dark ages right now, and, and you know, the city's going to go to hell in a handcart. I, I don't think that's the case. There's still money on the table here, but we're going to have to be judicious in what we do with this. We're going, uh, this we are the, probably the only city in Canada right now that has the prospect in front of it of trying to figure out how to spend a billion dollars. A billion dollars. Think about it. Like our cash reserves, I forget what they are. The city's total reserves, I think, are, I don't know, $700 million. And And here's somebody walking through the door with a billion dollars. And if we can't do something with transit that gives us roughly the same bang uh, for our buck as, as LRT, then, then we're lacking... In imagination, there's a lot of cities that have bus rapid transit, and it's been transformational in those communities. So, you know, we've got a great opportunity here if we can settle down a little bit, uh, reflect on this. Uh, Thank God next week is Christmas, because I think that's going to, you know, just quiet down the the buzz a little bit, and then maybe we can take a look at this uh, in the new year. But I agree. I, I think I think if if I saw well, there were a few things that went wrong with the Mulroney announcement. But I, I I think she should be more firm on that. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons to say that LRT uh, from a from a technical standpoint, there was a whole bunch of reasons why uh, it probably wasn't the right solution for Hamilton. Um, so I think she should you know she's she's taken the heat anyway. Uh, stick to your guns and let's let's move on. Rapid ready. That was the report I was. Rapid ready to. and blast. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and I know Brad Clark, who ran for mayor a couple of years ago on that platform, uh, is is I think probably dusting that report off right now. And I'm probably going to talk about that with council when they come back in the new year. Well, and you know, here I mean, with this kind of money, you could implement you could implement um, uh, BRT. You could do blast. You could you could do all these things uh, almost overnight. But you still have the issue of we don't have a lot of people riding public transit in this city. And, yeah, I guess if, you, if the vehicles are newer and shinier and maybe have a kind of a pointed nose on them that, you know, maybe people will flock to them. But we, you know, we, as I, a bit corny, but I said, you know, for the last 10 years we've had a transit cult in this city and what we need is a transit culture. And so there's going to have to be promotion. You know, we need frequency, reliability, so that somebody can actually, somebody, I'm in a two-car family. I am now starting to contemplate that maybe we could get away with one. I mean, that's the beginning. It's the beginning to, to, it's not to get everybody off the roads and have them walking. It's let's start by going from two-car families to one-car families. And, and, uh, you know, these incremental changes, uh, this overnight social engineering is not going to work. 
Nobody wants to be forced into doing anything. No. Uh, and and I, I said that to Jill Stevens, who was in charge of this project way back when, uh, in the initial stages, back around 2009, I guess it was, or whatever. And I said, it, it's only going to work if it's convenient and affordable. That's the only way people are going to do this. And uh, we're not there yet. One last thought on this, um, simply that the only decent public opinion poll that was ever done was that forum survey that was done two years ago, and it showed a clear plurality against LRT. My, and, and at that point, they were expressing their opinion based on it being $1 billion, and at that point, they didn't have Mr. Ford's promise that we could use the money for something else. And at that point, there was still a, a, a solid plurality against I would suggest that those numbers have gone even further. Now that we know it's a 2.8, you can argue the numbers are a bit fat, but it's pretty clear that 2 billion, 2.3, I don't know what the number is, but, you know, talk about betrayal by Ford, but is it a betrayal uh, when it appears that the cost of the project has tripled? Are you still obliged to keep the promise? Well, that's, uh, I guess, a question people are going to have to get their heads around. Uh, go to the Bay Observer webpage, by the way, because there's a lot of great writing on this. I know you've uh, studied this and done a lot of research on this, John. Thanks so much for coming in today. My pleasure, Bill. And uh, best of the season. Merry yeah, Christmas you too, to you. and your family, yes. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. It was a, uh, a sad day in Oshawa this week as the uh, General Motors plant shut down. We knew that announcement uh, about a year and a half or so ago, and we knew this was all coming, but... Uh, nonetheless, uh, when it finally comes to, to reality, it's a, a problematic situation, not just for the community, but I guess the uh, the greater concern here is the, is the automotive industry in Canada per se. Marvin Ryder, a business professor at the DeGroote School of Business from McMaster University is with us. Uh, thanks for coming in today. Glad to be here, Bill. Snowy day. Good to have you here. Uh, is this the death knell for the auto industry? I mean, Oshawa used to be called the Detroit of, of Canada. Uh, simply because of the production. And, and, you know, I can remember as a youngster, I mean, the, Oshawa was the place. Mm-hmm. And there was Brampton had uh, Chrysler, and mm-hmm. Oshawa had General Motors, and Ford and Oakville. And they went, wow, this is this is just great. Uh, not so much anymore. Yeah, I'm, I'm a little reluctant to use the word death now because uh, just to kind of recap where we stand today, the GM factory that was cranking out cars is shutting down primarily. Now there's 800 acres there, 800 acres there. Uh, GM... Um, wasn't part of their original plan. Let's give credit to the union here as part of the union fight back. They said, well, well, we'll keep some of this going. So there are 300 people who keep their jobs making parts there. Mm-hmm. And then they're going to take some of that land and turn it into a test uh, facility for cars. They've got a place, I think it's in Markham, that's going to be a research hub where they are designing vehicles using whatever Canadian knowledge we can give them. And then they'll test them out uh, still in Oshawa. So there's, there's land there. And GM... Um, hasn't said what they're going to do with the land yet. So I, I don't like to say death now because there is the possibility that something may move into that space that is automotive-related. It could be GM. It could be another company in the world. Uh, again, no shock to anyone listening to your program, but another possibility, of course, are there are Chinese automobile makers who are looking to come into the North American market and to have a former factory sitting idle in Oshawa. Apparently, they've had a couple of rounds kicking tires at it. We don't know how serious they are about any of that. So I don't like to say death now, but certainly it's a, a black letter day in Canadian automotive history. And when we say Canadian automotive uh, industries, Marvin, I mean, the, let's face it. I mean, we 
per, don't have a Canadian industry per se. I mean, no. we have American subsidiaries or, or Japanese or, or Korean or whatever it is right. that, that's, that set up plants here. Right, or German. And so yeah. the, the, the whole idea is that uh, in international trade, shipping costs, distribution costs can get very expensive. And a car is a very heavy item to ship. So, yes, one option is to build them all in Japan, then put them on a big boat, slow across the Pacific, and have them unloaded. But that can be a very expensive process. And so where possible, if you're selling enough volume that justifies it, you think about then opening a facility. And so that's how we have, have done this. And, of course, in Canada, it's not just finished automobiles or assembled automobiles, but it's the automobile parts. We have Dave Braley here uh, and in his company. We've got uh, the... Um, uh, Magna and and uh, the um, oh we got Stackpole yeah I'm trying to think of the, the people behind Magna I can't think of his name at the moment but uh, Stronic uh, Frank Stronic, Stronic thank you so much you know these these are people who've made a great business supplying parts so yeah. Canada is involved in many ways in the automobile industry and will for the foreseeable future. But nonetheless, when a company as strong as GM, because remember, it's, it's profitable. This is not being done in the name of, of, oh, we're losing billions of dollars and we've got to shutter some factories. They're profitable. It's just that the cars, the vehicles they made in Oshawa were not being demanded by people. And GM said, we can't see a replacement that's going to go in there for now. Why? I know you and I talked about that when the announcement was made, but if if you've got a company like this, and and I know that uh, you know the, the 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 union was very vocal about this, and you know in trying to keep this thing going, and they talked about how this was one of the most efficient plants uh, yep. in North America. Uh, you'd think that General Motors would say we got to make a way, find a way to make this work. Not unlike what Ford has done. I mean, two or three different times, uh, you know, the, the Oakville plant has been on de- on its deathbed, and Ford has revived it and said, "Okay, you know what? We weren't going to do anything, but now we're going to make such and such here." It was Lincoln for a while. It was Vans for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Windstar, they always tried to find something for it. General Motors didn't seem to. Well, maybe they did, but they just didn't tell us that they were actually trying to do a retrofit. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, let me be candid here, Bill. GM, the president of GM is a woman named Mary Barra. This is GM globally, not GM Canada. Yeah, yeah. Mary Barra. And, and she, she's been very cagey about the future of GM. The car industry in general, not just in Canada, but in general, is at a bit of a watershed. We've got two major developments warming up in the bullpen. The first is electric cars, and the second is self-driving or autonomous driving vehicles. Uh, what worries GM, Ford, and Chrysler is that many of the people behind those vehicles are not their traditional competitors. In other words, it's Google who's developing a yeah. car. It's Apple who's developing a car. It's uh, Uber who's developing cars. Uh, and, of course, Tesla came up out of nowhere and has had a, a, a bit, a little bit of a beachhead in the automotive industry. So she's looking around and she's seeing competition not just from her traditional competitors, but a, a bunch of well-funded startups. <laughs> I mean, again, think about the value of Facebook or Amazon. Yeah. If they said they were going to get into the radio industry, you would be shocked. Sure, you know, sure. Because they have the clout to really disrupt if they want to disrupt. So. Part of the closure in GM, it appears, is to make the company even more profitable so it can build a war chest, which it can then invest in these two major things. Now, we just saw statistics on electric cars that they'd actually fallen this year in Ontario. Sales have gone down. No real shocker here. Doug Ford... Uh, canceled some uh, buying initiatives, some subsidies for uh, electric vehicles, and so they fell further. But in British Columbia, where they still have those things, uh, this year electric cars were 10% of the total. Uh, Again, I'm not saying they're going to change in a year or two years, but 
if I put my hat on and say this is 2020 almost, look at 2030, what the world's going to look like. So that's what GM is trying to do. And I, I still think there may be some hope to resurrect GM, but in a totally different way of building cars. It might be a totally different kind of car being built there or vehicle. Let's just call it a vehicle. It may not be a car at all. It might be some sort of crossover vehicle. Those are possibilities. But she doesn't want to make that commitment now because she's not even completely certain what year, what moment, when they're going to be ready to do those things. Well, exactly. Nor is anybody else. I right. mean, the quote-unquote North American car makers are really only dipping their toe in the water when it comes to these new technologies because they're not sure if, if, whether or not it's going to catch on. Electric vehicles just have not flourished the way that, that I think a lot of people thought they were. We're not there yet. Yeah, there's there's two major problems with electric vehicles, and there was a wonderful story on CBC earlier this week where they got themselves a little vehicle. I want to tell you it was a Chevrolet Volt, but I, I shouldn't maybe go out there. It might have been something, a Kia Leaf or something like this. Uh, anyway, they were going to drive it from Toronto to Detroit, and they were just photographing their uh, journey. And they had plotted out, they had got a, um, you know, gone online and found out where the, all the high-speed charging stations were between Toronto, and they mapped out how far they could go. Now, this Volt, or Leaf, its uh, effective range was only something like 150 kilometers. And so the distance between Toronto and Detroit is, is normally four times that amount. It's nearly 600 kilometers. Mm-hmm. So they knew they were going to have to stop four times for charging. And uh, everything started off not too badly, and, and the high-speed charger was charging. It took about 20 minutes for them to get enough juice to go. Uh, it wasn't that expensive. 20 minutes was costing them something like $6, and so that wasn't all that bad. But uh, And they would stop for a cup of coffee, <laughs> kind of a donut at a Tim yeah. Hortons. It was the third station the problem was. When they got there, something had malfunctioned, and it was closed. And so then they had to try to Google another station. There was one that was not all that close. They just barely got there in time. My point in all of this is that there's two major constraints with electric vehicles. One is the speed of charging. Right now, I can fill my gas tank and be back on the road in four or five minutes tops. And if I have to take two hours to charge my vehicle, wow, that's not good. And then the range. Uh, The range, uh, there are some good vehicles out there where the range is now 300, 350 kilometers. But I have, I have sisters who live in the London area, and if I want to do a round trip from my home in Dundas to London and back, that's just about 350 kilometers. I would be reluctant to try to do that in one charge, and I'm not going to ask my sisters to install a charging station <laughs> at their home. So I need that distance to get to about 500 kilometers. This second one, the, the am- amount you can drive on a charge, I think we're going to be there in a year or two. I, it, the battery technology is evolving enough to candle that. It's the speed of charging that's got me worried. How do we speed that up? And I, I think to some extent there is a bit of a practical limit as to how fast you can pour electrons, if you will, into a battery. Nonetheless, smart people, much smarter than you and I, are working on these things. And I do think within 10 years these, will, these problems will be overcome and they'll be much more popular. The other element to this, too, and you and I have talked about this when it comes to electric cars especially, uh, is it's cold here in, in yes. Canada. Uh, a lot of these things that are being tested are done in Southern California, and it's wonderful down there. Lovely. But it gets cold here. And anybody who knows uh, anything about batteries, you know, whether it's your smartwatch or anything else, uh, you know, the, the battery dies when it gets really cold, and or at least it shortens its life anyway. It does. Well, this CBC story in which they went down to Detroit, it was at this time of the year. And so that's one of the things they found that although their range was 150 kilometers, they weren't getting 150 kilometers. It was wearing out faster. They also found out because it was a cold day and they put extra heating on in the car that the heating in the car was draining sure. the batteries more quickly as well. So there, there are challenges. There's absolutely challenges about this stuff. But I, I do have enough belief in technology that says I think 
think it's a matter of when, not if, that they'll get past them. So if I'm GM, when will these be viable? When will I be able to give you a longer range vehicle? Or uh, forget about cars, you know, with this week's announcement around LRT, some of the opponents to LRT said, well, thank God, because now we'll be able to get those electric buses that I know we need to have. Well, Electric buses aren't quite there just yet either. So all of these technologies are in the wings, and I think they'll be there at some point, but nobody knows when. So if I'm a company like GM or Ford, uh, I've got to play my cards that way. Maybe I should note, Bill, you asked again about the end of the automobile industry in Canada. There was another big announcement this week that hardly anyone's talked about, and that is that uh, uh, the Chrysler organization, this is the the one that is connected, obviously, to Fiat, uh, just announced this week that it's merging with Peugeot in France. And together, they'll be the fourth largest car maker in the world. Uh, that's, that's huge news. And the worry here again is that uh, Chrysler has two plants here in Canada. Are they on the chopping block? The announcement came out this week was no, they're not on the chopping block. But what is on the chopping block when you put these two giants together are management jobs. They're hoping to save nearly a billion dollars by getting rid of redundant managers, accounting people, finance people, what have you. But that's been a big announcement this week. And why are they doing it? Again, they're trying to put together their technologies and put together their resources to be ready to compete in whatever world's going to come by the year 2030. Another factor here that has always intrigued me, and, and this is maybe one of the reasons why General Motors, and maybe the other ones for that matter, are a little hesitant, because uh, they, they've misread the market in the past. I mean, there was a <laughs> there was a tendency about eight or ten years ago to say, you know what, we're going to have to develop smaller cars because gasoline prices are going through the yep, roof right the now. Roof. We're buying pickup trucks and SUVs now, and they, they didn't anticipate that. No, and, and of course, the, here's the funny thing, Bill. Do you remember, I guess now it would be two and a half years ago, I may have my dates off ever so slightly. My memory's aging. Um, gasoline price for a very brief time, or excuse me, oil prices for a very brief time went to $150 a barrel. There was some speculation, something going on in the market, and suddenly the pump prices went up to a, a buck forty a liter, and overnight SUV sales did die off, yeah. just boom. Uh, and then three months later, oil prices fell down to as low as $35 a barrel, and suddenly gasoline prices were back underneath a buck a liter, and everyone bought SUVs and crossovers. We consumers are very fickle as well. And that's, that's another thing these companies have to figure out is, well, where are we going to be? I can ask people about the kind of vehicles they want to drive, but they always assume the current economic situation. And if we fall into a recession, if you lose your job, what you thought you were going to buy might change. And you've got to try to anticipate that because to get a vehicle to market from design concept to launch is two to three years. So the vehicles that the researchers are working on in 2020 are the ones that are going to be launched in 2024. Do you know what 2024 looks like? I, I don't even know who's going to be president in 2024. So it's, it's a very difficult business. I'm not trying to justify the layoff, Bill. I do feel badly for these 2,400 workers in, in, in uh, Oshawa. And I, I am a little surprised that they couldn't, uh, GM couldn't find more to do with the plant. But if I'm trying to do it from GM's management's point of view, it is a very volatile time. Probably the most volatile it's been in the car industry in 30 years. I mean, we're at the point right now that, I, again, to go back four years ago, who, th- who knew that Ford was going to say, we're not making cars anymore? You know, we're, ju- we're just doing trucks and SUVs now because that's the only thing that's selling these days. Uh, so the, the, the hope for anything going on in Oshawa right now, I guess, is pretty slim. But except for something offshore, I mean, 10 years ago, I remember you talking to us about the Chinese auto auto industry, and it was a joke at that time. It was. Not anymore. No, no, absolutely not. And even I should 
throw out too, there's an Indian automobile industry and they make some nice, and still making cars, by the way, small commuter cars. But both of those have said, well, we're now, there's enough interest in North America for these, especially now that the big guys are kind of abandoning some of this stuff that maybe we should be looking at plants here. And let's also understand that China is the second largest economic power in the world today. Within five years, again, sort of that 2024, 2025 timeframe, China is going to be the dominant economic power. They've got money. Now, we've had a bit of a setback this year in our relations with China. Yeah. You and I have talked about Madame Meng and Huawei, what have you. But it's working its way through. Um, no, I'm not happy about Canadians being in prison for the last year. But, you know, it's working its way through. And I think as we head into 2020, I suspect there will be some news about Chinese companies wanting to invest in Canada, especially, again, while President Trump is in power. I doubt they want to put money into the United States. And so to teach him a little lesson, they're likely interested in putting money into Canada. And I think some of the things that some of the bad things that happened this year with China's relations are going to be reversed. So who knows? And and so I, that's why I wouldn't think, or at least I'm hoping that that plant in Oshawa will not become some sort of a ghost town full of weeds, that there'll actually be some new life breathed into it. Can't give you a timeline, but I'm very hopeful. When China does decide to jump into the North American market, are they going to come big? I, I mean, it's not just going to be, hey, we're putting a plant or are they going to start just, you know, uh, they, they usually do things in a, in a grand way. Yeah, I, I suspect they'll be like Tesla. So Tesla began with one plant. When they needed to expand that one plant, this is in California where they make the vehicles, they actually built a tent, if you can believe it or not, and they built cars in a tent. Tesla now is producing enough cars that they've talked about opening a second plant. And I think China may do the same. Because, again, th- nobody knows how they're going to react. I, I didn't know when uh, Korean cars came into the market how we Canadians and and North Americans were going to react to those brands. I will tell you when China comes into the market, they'll give a name of the company and they'll give a name to their cars that doesn't sound the least bit Chinese. And therefore, you you might be, be forgiven if you didn't realize you were buying Chinese product. They are very clever that way. But I, I don't know if they'll come in with five plants at once. I think they're more likely to do one, see how it goes, and then expand from there. Uh, yeah, the, I, it brings back memories of the Hyundai uh, back in the yeah. early 1980s, and, and it was not received well, as a matter of fact, because I guess the cars actually underperformed, but they, they got their act together pretty quickly. They did. Well, the Pony was the, the yeah. first car they brought here, and it was a little commuter car, and, and uh, <laughs> for Canadian environments, was prone to rusting and wearing out quickly, and I think it was a four-cylinder vehicle. So it was better than the Lada, though. Yeah, better than the, the Lada, or, or their, their, I'm trying to remember the East German car that uh, never went anywhere, but... Um, uh, but uh, kind of like a, a driving a lawnmower, the four-cylinder engine, just to, you, you'd floor it and you were going 60 kilometers an hour. <laughs> you wouldn't want to get it on a four-lane highway. But as you correctly noted, once they got into the market and got the feedback, they were able to very quickly improve the quality, meet the cars. And today there are now some Hyundais out there that are high-end cars yeah, yeah. and uh, luxury cars that people consider buying and, and say they're just wonderful. So uh, even if China does trip when they first enter, or even if they hiccup when they first enter, don't think that's going to be the standard. They they are very good at doing things very well. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School. Uh, thanks again for being here. And, uh, Glad to be here. Merry Christmas. Thank you. Happy Have, holidays to everybody. You betcha. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, Democratic debate was held last night, another in a series of Democratic debates. Of course, these are all uh, uh, presidential hopefuls. Uh, one of them is probably is going to be uh, the one who's going to challenge uh, Donald Trump in the election, which is going to be happening in November of next year. 
Uh, and it got pretty testy last night for a whole lot of reasons that we'll get into in a couple of seconds. Joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa. Elliot, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Bill. Listen, before we get into the presidential stuff, uh, you, you read on what's hot happened on, on, par, on uh, Capitol Hill over the last couple of days with the impeachment vote. I guess there was a certain sense of inevitability simply because the Democrats had the votes in the House to do this. But... Uh, uh, there was no shortage of rhetoric, no shortage of a response from the, the president. What, what, what do you see happening now? Well, got a bunch of thoughts, of course. Uh, first of all, for people like me, uh, it's it's riveting stuff anyway. <laughs> uh, the inevitability that you and I have talked about this many times that mm-hmm. you know this is this is kind of a speed bump instead of a big you know, turning point in history. Uh, they're on their way since each side knows the script and they're just going to follow it and. But, you know, when you actually hear this, uh, you know, the vote has passed, the president is impeached, it's still at least a poignant moment, uh, and then we have to get back to the analysis of what it's all leading to. The, as you can tell, uh, the Democrats are doing their best to shake up the script. Uh, they don't have a lot of leverage here, but Nancy Pelosi's musing that, well, we'll send this over later sometime, uh, really has drawn a lot of attention. But the purpose behind that is Mitch McConnell had clearly signaled his intention just to sweep this away very, very quickly, put it behind them, and uh, basically be contemptuous, as he was, if you heard his his uh, very formal statement. And uh, as as Speaker, the you know, as House uh, leader uh, in the Senate, he, I'm sorry, the, the, as a leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell read his formal statement, and it's going to go down in history. But Schumer had his, Pelosi had hers. So part of what we're seeing is Pelosi is now saying, we know what the script is, and we're going to do what little bit we can to shake it up. And I think that's the way to view her unexpected, uh, saying, we're not we don't know when we're going to send over this. We voted the articles of impeachment, but now... And, of course, Mitch McConnell said, well, we don't understand. You have no leverage. We didn't want to get this in the first place, so not sending it isn't leverage. But essentially the Democrats are maneuvering now to shake it up by saying, okay, we want witnesses. Schumer says we want witnesses in the hopes that uh, once witnesses are brought before the American public, if not uh, the, the Senate majority, Republican majority, that at least will still have an impact. But is there a willingness among any of the Republican senators to to go along with that? I mean, they, they can they can vote for that and still you know exonerate Trump at some point down the future when they have that vote. But they seem to have all lined up behind Trump at this stage, Elliot. I'm not so sure that any of them. I, I mean, people like Mitt Romney and, and Senator Collins, I guess, out of Maine, uh, may break away from that. But I don't see too many others re- willing yes, to do that. They're not as solid as uh, as the House uh, uh, Republicans. And you and I have talked about this. As long as Donald Trump has absolute command over the voting base, then the voting base has command over the elected representatives in both houses. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it, it, it's futile to do what is done over and over. Why don't these Republicans break ranks? Why don't they, etc.? Uh, that command is over the base is is so strong. It's now stronger than Ronald Reagan ever had over the Republican base. So that's that's staying solid. But in the Senate, no, there could be more. It tell, to change the rules as opposed to go for conviction, we should. There's a distinction here. Mm-hmm. You only need 51 votes to say, well, here's, and the, and the Republicans remember are up by four. So 
you don't need many votes to say that for 51 votes, you can change the rules, establish the rules, so that, yes, witnesses could be called. So Schumer is playing to the fact that maybe for including the two you mentioned, and, and there's um, from Alaska and another state as well. So there's a possibility that there might be some, some slippage there, but ultimately you need 20 Republicans to change their position in order to convict these articles of impeachment. That's not likely at this moment. But back to, um, to what the impeachment's all about, the, both sides are establishing the terms of reference, their messages for the 2020 election after the failure to remove the president in the Senate, then they're back to campaigning. Each side, of course, will use this to mobilize their base and raise a lot of money. The Republicans are raising a lot of money off the impeachment. But they're also setting the terms of the debate, where you have uh, the Democrats saying, we have to focus on the lawlessness. Nobody in America is a king. Nobody's above the law. And the Democrat, Republicans saying, the, uh, you saw them all line up on this, this is just an attempt to overturn the will of the people, and these are elites who are blocking you. So the Republicans are effectively saying, this isn't about Trump, it's about the, re- the people who voted for Trump. They hate you. You have to now rally around and show up. And remember, elections are won by people who show up. So who's going to get their people out more based on the kinds of debate terms that were set by the impeachment? Uh, there have been not been too many light moments in this whole process over the last eight or nine weeks, but there was one yesterday, or I guess it was the day before that I, I thought was rather interesting. Uh, one of the Republicans, and I can't re- remember which senator it was, uh, said, that, look at, he says, if, if, if this goes through and Donald Trump is, is, is booted out of office, he says, I will guarantee you that the next president will also get impeached and booted out of office. And Jerry Nadler, who's the chairman of the committee, said, I want to remind the member that uh, if that happens, Mike Pence would be the next president. Uh, so, <laughs> well, I- whoops. <laughs> Yes, and I think that's uh, nicely put. We should also remember that Nancy Pelosi is third in line. Yeah, so, exactly. And also that Mike Pence has been caught up, as has uh, Mike Pompeo, into the into the muck of the Ukraine uh, situation. Uh, it doesn't look like they'll actually reach him in terms of impeachment. But uh, the key, the, all the top leadership of the Republican establishment, starting with the president himself but the vice president as well. They're all in this now uh, because of the testimony, but it's not likely to actually lead to uh, their removal. But uh, yes, Nancy Pelosi was in her moment. She really has handled this uh, very, very effectively. For me, this is, um, as a political scientist, and as a teacher, what a chance for the American public and around the world to see constitutional process is being debated and so forth. Remember, among other things, it's been pointed out as part of what you and I are now talking about, that once this becomes a trial, everybody takes a separate and different oath promising impartiality in the face of a trial. And that's one of the, one of the uh, charges now being made by Schumer is, look, you had, you had the foreman of the, of the jury, that is uh, Mitch McConnell, going on Fox News and saying, I'm not impartial, and I, I'm not going to, this, I, I'll be in touch with the lawyers of the president yeah. to coordinate. And the, uh, Lindsey Graham, who's head of the Judiciary Committee, has said more or less the same thing. Well, yeah, there's a certain hypocrisy to that. Uh, and you just wonder if there's going to be anything happening in this quote-unquote trial, though, Elliot, that's going to shift anybody's opinion. And, and I understand where Schumer's coming from. Witnesses would help, but I mean, I'd, I'd be very surprised 
uh, if a if a you know a Bolton or a, a Mulvaney or anybody else or even Mike Pence for that matter uh, was ordered. Mind you, I, I, I was talking to an American journalist about this the other day. Uh, and he gave, raised an interesting point because uh, obviously they've defied any subpoenas that have been issued by the, this, the congressional right. committee. But he saw it to me that if this happens during this committee, it's actually the chief justice that will issue the subpoena. And he says, "You do not, you do not dismiss that. You you, you better show up." Yes. Uh, one thing that didn't get picked up much is in the middle of all of this is that when Schumer says we want witnesses, the four they listed, he only listed four. It was Mulvaney and basically other members of his team and related who could give direct testimony that, yes, the aid was held up. Those were the only four. So people are talking, as uh, 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 not it's Democrats as well, talking about Bolton coming in. Uh, well, maybe he will. What about Mike, Mike, Mike Pompeo? But what Schumer said that didn't get underlined was that if the president wishes to call witnesses, he can do so too. And that opens up the possibility of what Trump has been wanting all along. He wants a circus, if he did before anyway, yeah. whereas Mitch McConnell just wants a slap. He wants to slap down the Democrats, slap this off, off the agenda altogether. But this opens the possibility, what Trump and, and many Republicans have been saying, oh, we're, we're going to get Hunter Biden in there. They're, tr- they're still trying to knock Joe Biden off from being the most formidable challenger to the president. And that's what this was all about in the first place. Which is a nice segue. we got a couple of minutes left. I want to talk about uh, the, the debate last night. Uh, you can always tell, and this is a bellwether that I think you brought up the, even before the first debate last summer, uh, who they think the front runner and who the challenger is because the rest of them all gang up on it. It was Pete right. Buttigieg last night. I mean, where does this guy come from? He was an also-ran at one point. Uh, he's, uh, he seems to be the, the, the growing concern now. Yes, he's surging in Iowa, and yeah. Iowa is the very first... Uh, it's a caucus state, but it's the first primary, and that's on February the 3rd, so it's coming up. Uh, so suddenly he's actually a contender, and therefore uh, those who want to instead replace him as contenders have to take him down. And that's what we saw as an exercise uh, in that debate, and it possibly it worked. I thought it was very interesting that, uh, well, a couple other things. First of all, everybody's saying, well, what you see in front of you is going to be the final field. And, of course, it isn't. Mike Bloomberg is entering. Mm-hmm. He's entering in a big way. He's skipping the opening primaries, but he's, he's going to compete heavily. Against whom? Biden. So this is, this is he's not probably going to become the nominee, but Joe Biden has a, a formidable contender that's not being talked about at all. He, he can be diminished, opening up a path to others. I thought it was very interesting because it's somebody I've been watching right from day one is how well Amy Klobuchar did. Yeah. And it's been pointed out, Bill, that she's exactly where John Kerry was at exactly this point before the Iowa caucuses when he went from 3%. I think she's all the way up to 6 or 5%. 5%. Um, but he, he basically came up the middle and, and won Iowa, and then he went on to win everything else and become the nominee. So a possibility of the centrist and the party coming together. Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar would be a very formidable centrist team. But this is still for the Democrats to sort out. Elliot, are they over this idea? Because I think the, gross con- the growing concern they had is, look at, uh, everybody loves Elizabeth Warren. Everybody, you know, there's Bernie Sanders, you know, do you feel the burn, all this sort of stuff. But there is no way that a, a left candidate, left-wing candidate is going to beat Donald Trump. It's just, I don't see that happening. Are they moving more towards the center and, and now all of a sudden focusing their attentions on the Klobuchar's and the Buttigieg? And, of course, Joe Biden. Yes, well, what's, 
the attention is now beginning as we get closer and closer to actual voting. Attention seems to be focused more and more on on the one single issue that's overwhelming everything else is who can beat Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And Donald Trump has been quite focused on this all along, which is why we've talked about the Ukraine situation yeah. in the first place. So, um, yeah, so the possibility that does exist that the party will now move toward its electability uh, focus. I just saw a poll that among Democrats and Democratic-leading voters, 80% think Joe Biden would be the best candidate, 60 for for Sanders, and then it trails on down from there, and Buttigieg is the only one who doesn't make it at all among the current top contenders. So uh, electability now may come to the fore, and that in turn might move everybody toward the center, which means Joe Biden. Assess his his performance last night, because he he got basically uh, rattled, I think, in the last couple of... The first one, of course, there were some concerns about his rambling speeches, and then yes, even the last one, uh, he seemed a little off his game. But uh, he seemed to be, pre- to pre- I thought, anyway, pretty strong last night. Yes, everybody's saying it's, it's, it's his strongest so far. Uh, perhaps he's just hitting his stride. There's a lot of comment that when you have fewer people on the stage, those who are on the stage have more of a chance to show their stuff. And that was too true of Andrew Yang, uh, who is remaining a very interesting candidate. And yeah. He's remaining on the debate stage, uh, but he's not going to get the nomination. So, uh, yeah, uh, I thought, like everybody else, that this was a very strong performance for the former vice president. He was prepared for the kinds of attacks he knew was coming. And then he stayed quiet and let everybody else uh, beat, his, you know, beat up on themselves. And he remained quiet in the middle, and therefore he comes out ahead at the end. It's, it seems as if that's that's where the party is gravitating toward right now. That I, 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 I get the sense sometimes, Elliot, the way the these things are starting to unfold is if uh, you know there's Biden and then the rest of them are really kind of bidding like who else is going to be on the ticket. Well, there's we're still a long way away. Yeah, as I say, uh, we have the possibility that Bloomberg will take a bite out of Biden, and everybody else will then have more space to play. And that means that the Democratic Party may stay disorganized right up till the end in terms of having a real champion that can actually beat Donald Trump. And Donald Trump then is in a much stronger position because, uh, he, because of that. But also he's so much better organized and has so much more money this time than last time that uh, this race could come down to, oh, gosh, we would like to get rid of him, but uh, my candidate didn't get it, so I'm not going to show up to vote. And, and the Democrats are always looking for reasons to not show up at the polls. Mm-hmm. And the Republicans are looking for reasons uh, to definitely get there and swamp everybody else because they feel effectively the messaging by the GOP we talked about that they have been disrespected and now they're, they're going to fight back and they're going to win again, uh, despite the obvious foibles and, and uh, missteps of, of Donald Trump. Well, it's going to be a very interesting 2020. Uh, a, a final quick comment, though. Sure. NAFTA got passed. The new NAFTA. Yes. We shouldn't. We, so we're in a bizarre world, though, where they go from impeachment along party lines to one hour later in a bipartisan way. Only 41 out of them <laughs> voted against NAFTA. So the new NAFTA looks like might actually get passed. That's big news. It is. It is. And now just Canada has to get on board with that. Elliot, we're just about out of time today. Uh, listen, I, I probably won't see you again or talk to you again until after the holidays. Uh, Merry Christmas, and thanks so much for your great contributions through well, the course of the year. It's greatly thank appreciated. Thank you. It's a pleasure to work with you and to everybody. You know, peace on earth and goodwill to all. Absolutely. Take care, Elliot.
Elliot Tepper, of course, Emeritus Professor at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.